Hi there, Jacob here. Welcome to Designing the Robot Revolution. One thing that fascinates me with designing and developing digital products in general, but is relevant in AI and machine learning projects in particular, is data. Data has become this almost magical material that promises to fuel new product development and, in broader perspective, our entire economy, much like oil and coal once did. And just as with refining crude oil, making data valuable and useful requires refinement through a set of processes involving multiple actors. This journey from raw data streams to refined, actionable insights is not yet standardized. We're still figuring out how to do things. And as we get better at this, new possibilities for designing products will emerge. One who knows about the challenges connected to collaboration and value creation from data is Ebba Josefsson Linkvist, who works at AI Sweden, an organization that brings together government and private organizations in Sweden to further developments within the field. Join me and David as we talk to Ebba about how organizations can collaborate to get more value from their data. This is Designing the Robot Revolution. Enjoy. We started off by asking about what AI Sweden is and what it is that they do. Absolutely. So AI Sweden is the National Center for Applied AI in Sweden. It's four years that we've been around. It's a program that belongs to the main host, Lindholmen Science Park, but it's also hosted by quite a few other science parks throughout Sweden. We have nodes basically all over Sweden. And we have this local presence, of course, because Sweden's industry, for example, is very diverse, focusing on different things in the different part of the country. And we're also an organization that has both private members and public, as well as academic members, or you can be a member or partner of AI Sweden. So hence the local presence, but the national mission of basically helping different organizations in Sweden become better at using applied AI for whatever topic or area where it's needed in that industry or in that sector. And what does it mean by applied AI? Yeah, so if you talk about general AI, where you would see an AI do everything that a human can do, for example, that's the general AI, whereas applied AI would be using AI for specific tasks, let's say predictive maintenance in industry production, for example, where you would make sure that the maintenance of these machines is at its best. Or it could be in healthcare, for example, where you would look at precision healthcare and use AI for making the best healthcare for that specific person, looking at the data from that person's history, etc. So using AI for specific topics and specific tasks. For a big industrial company who are developing applied AI with predictive maintenance, for example, why might you join an organization like AI Sweden? What's the benefit? What do you get from being a member? It's really a lot about the networking here again, the Swedish AI ecosystem. So AI Sweden, you can see, is kind of a spider in the web. We're trying to connect different actors. We know that different actors has different expertise. So when we were mentioning before, for example, some of the AI startups that are part of AI Sweden, they might have the expert knowledge on some specific AI field that a large industry would need, and they are maybe not able to develop it themselves. They would need someone else to help them. 
So AI Sweden would be there to connect these two parties, to find out how they can collaborate and maybe even develop something new together, test something together. It could also be connecting industry with academia or industry with public sector and make sure that they can benefit from each other's knowledge. Um, so that's really where we are. We have a few AI experts working at AI Sweden, but I would say that most of us are some kind of project manager or a person that would basically create projects for these partners to make sure that they can connect and find each other out there. Cool. What's your like focus specifically in, in that context? I work with a project called the Data Factory, uh, which is focusing on the compute and the data side of AI. Then the, we discussed a bit the, the name of the data factory because a lot of people tend to think it's, you know, really all about the data and not so much about the compute. The focus has been quite a bit on the infrastructure required for creating AI, training models, etc. But we are still also working quite a bit on connecting different data sets from partners that are willing to share them and make them available to other partners who wants to use them. So you could see it as kind of a test arena where you can bring in your own AI model, where you can get help from someone who already has a model, or where you can find new data that you don't have yourself, or if you just want to learn more just to use the infrastructure that we have. Hmm. And we do have something called Edge Learning Lab at the moment, which is focusing on a very specific side of the new development on how you can, in a federated way, train your AI models. So it's really also an opportunity to kind of test new things, bring something in, find your new partners and really from the start, create something new, a new area of search, for example, within AI. Can you define federated data? Of course. I mean, so the idea of federated learning is to, instead of collecting all the data and put it in one spot, let's say a data center, you would use and train the data on the data where it's located. So let's say in a vehicle where the data is collected. Instead of moving it through the cloud or so to one data center, you'd leave it actually out in the car or in the lawn lower, or if you want to use another type of, let's say it could also be actually one hospital that would want to train a model together with another hospital, but not necessarily sharing that data. They basically just train them. They, they share the model instead of sharing the data. That's the essence of it. Hmm. One topic of all the ones that you mentioned just now that really triggers me is the potential for having different parties share their data mm-hmm. to be used in training and the complications that arise due to people wanting to protect their data but also want to access other people's data and the sort of conflict there and can you speak to that a little bit because I feel like you have some insights. I'd love to talk a bit about the sharing data because it's something that I've been very much involved in, both trying to encourage partners to share data and also, again, with the legal side of things, how complicated it can be. But not only from, let's say, sensitive data point of view or like personal data, but also from a company secret perspective, IP, etc., so, but we actually have seen quite a few of the, I, I want to call them the, the brave partners who are kind of in the forefront of sharing data. Some of the automotive companies, uh, we have also, you know, one of the wildlife bird partners from RISE who has been very generous in donating data that we've seen could actually be used for things that you never thought 
it would be possible to use it for, where we've had this cross collaborations between basically biology and the automotive industry, where they both had really good benefit of using this kind of data. So I would say, again, it's a little bit of a mindset thing. A lot of organizations think, you know, this is, this is our data and we worked a lot. We've invested a lot of money to make it exist. We just don't want to give it away to someone. It should have a value. And most data has some kind of value, but it's hard to say how much is, uh, what is the value if you're not using it or if you're not using it the right way. So you need to be a bit brave to actually want to give away your data or make it available to others. And then, of course, we've been doing a few different licensing agreements with the partners to make sure that we can make it available. Some have been, you know, super generous and basically just given it away. Others have had a little bit more requirements on how to make it available, etc. And of course, they want to learn. And I think that's the kind of trade-off. They want to know what the data was used for, how it was used, and if they can benefit from it in any way, then of course, that's definitely a plus, but it hasn't really been a must. And I think some of them that have provided data, for example, Sensec, just to mention one, it's really that they want to also encourage others to do the same. To show that it's possible, it's legally possible, it's also possible from a mindset perspective, and they also want to encourage others. AstraZeneca has donated data as well. So it's definitely possible, and it would be great fun if, if more would be willing to. And I think we're actually getting there. This is super exciting to me. So this is a really cool topic of discussion. And what I'm curious about is what makes the companies pivot? Because what I've seen is for, for let's say, Companies that are in the beginning of talking about using their data, they're very much, as you say, protective of their data. I've seen examples of, of a company that basically don't want to share if they don't get paid. You know, you trade a data point for a penny. And that's a very hard thing to do because before you have access to the data, you don't want to pay for it because what's the value in just random data? You, you need to sort of, how do you... What, what's the thing that makes companies pivot to actually committing to sharing? What, what's the thing that, or is there a thing? Yeah, there are, there are a few things, actually. And there's some tricks out there that you could use. And I think that's really maybe part of the role what AI Sweden should do and, and is doing. We've had, for example, we've arranged a few hackathons that have been created together with the partners that want to donate data. And, and that's really an amazing trigger for them to see and get the value back quite fast. So you can basically do a fun thing around it. You have a lot of event opportunities. You network and meet and start, or the, the teams, I should say, that apply for the different hackathons that come in with, you know, very diverse knowledge because you would need, you know, the AI experts. And depending on the topic of the hackathon, we've done both biomedical hackathons, the one with AstraZeneca and with Sensact on the automotive side, just to mention two. And it's really just fun to see what's happening when you put all these different people together. You know, the experts from the ones who create the data and what they see and what they imagine the data could be used for, they usually have a challenge in their mind and how it's going to be solved. What happens when you have these different teams take on the challenge is that they see way different ways of solving the issue. And that's where these the donators, so to say, 
really have the great benefit of seeing, okay, oh, we could really use our data in that way. We haven't even mm. thought about it. So maybe doing a hackathon, creating some kind of event like that around the data is really a good trigger to make sure that they want to open up and, and share the data. Have you seen companies that have participated, donated data, seen some result in a hackathon or, or otherwise? Have they changed how they work with their data tangibly so that there's an, an output in that sense? Or, or is it more of a, we're starting our transformative journey and how we think about it, and then we'll take the next step? I mean, some have really seen results. I don't want to mention one company no. too many times, but but Tensect is just a good example here because that's really what came out of the, that last hackathon. It kind of started from one of the projects that we were running together with a few other organizations, RISE, et cetera. It's called the Road Data Lab. And at the end of that project, we decided to let's do a hackathon. And, and Tensect's role in the project was to donate data. So they were the provider and they also had the idea of this federated learning that I was mentioning that, okay, you have a fleet with all of your, your cars or the vehicles, and you want to get access to that data. But as long as, you know, a customer bought the car, for example, it's not going to be your data necessarily anymore, but you would still like to see if you can train your general model on the data that is collected from all of these vehicles. No, you know, still be mindful of the personal data wherever, but if you could really get the essence of what's happening out there in the fleet, and if you could use federated learning to do that in a privacy-preserving setting, for example. So Sensec in this case wanted to see, is it possible to use this type of technology? What can these teams that use the data do? And AI Swing was providing the infrastructure to train on and, and to basically do the two-week of, of challenge. and then. Since the results, Sensec has actually created a group at Sensec that is working specifically on the federated learning to basically develop this further and see if it's possible for them to to eventually maintain it and use it in, in the different vehicles at some point. So that's actually a, a very, very cool to have an example of a company that opens up the use and the, the, they give access to their data and they get, in essence ways of creating products that they couldn't have if they hadn't made their data possible open. Yes, exactly. And and then again, in the collaboration with this, we call it the, the bird data set. They were also testing quite a bit on, on like the, the basic technology of this federated learning. They were using this very insensitive data with the birds. They're being filmed out in Kamsa and Gotland. Instead of trying to use, you know, their own data, which is very, can be very sensitive at some point. Of course, they could use it with themselves, but if they want to collaborate with others, it's difficult. So to kind of fast forward the uh, development and, and testing the technology, they did it at AI Sweden in our lab and used this insensitive data and, and also could kind of get a, get a quick result to say, okay, it's worth putting more time into. And then we had the hackathon, which basically just increased the belief that this type of technology is something to continue looking at. Hmm. So hence the, the testing in the data factory and those opportunities. Sometimes there's a reluctance from companies because they feel they own the data and they shouldn't just let it go. And there's this worry of once they let it go, it's gone. We've, anyone could take it. The federated approach is really interesting because to a certain extent, it allows you to keep ownership or control of your data in a sense because you keep it in your 
data centers rather than putting giving it over to a third party or opening up access are there ways you could reassure someone like a ceo who's worried about just relinquishing their data by developments in the legal approach to this even david you're kind of putting your head to the point here when technology comes you know me legal and you also being an ex-lawyer you know that law is always trying to keep up with technology right and i think that that's why i really like to still be in that space in between because i would say that from a legal perspective we don't really have the answers yet it hasn't been tried in courts it's you know it's it's a couple of years ahead from now we've had some really interesting dialogues with the data protection agency of sweden UMI. they have also picked up this topic specifically on federated learning and they recently actually came out with a report from a project that was run at sweden with two of the hospitals who wanted to try this technology and basically do that that i explained before have two different data sets, but share a model. And they were looking into, okay, is this actually legally possible to, is this the quick fix on how we can use AI technology without sharing the data? The answer wasn't really that straight, that we are now seeing that there's no personal data being shared, etc. Because you also have to look into what can these models remember? You know, mm. remembering quotation mm, marks. Course, yeah. Is mm. anything else transferred? But it's really, really interesting questions to look into because as soon as you think you've solved something, then you have, you basically, you, you scratch on the surface and then you find the next question and the next question. And I think that's how we, how we need to go about it. Mm. A few brave actors that need, that want to test and want to kind of push the boundaries. And then you'll have to always make sure that you also look into the legal, the regulatory perspective of it, maybe the ethical perspective, and then see, okay, are we still in line with where we want to be? Are we pushing it too far? Can we make changes to this technology so it actually works also in a legal way? And that's why I think it's really fun to, you know, when we see these projects, when you bring in, for example, a lawyer or someone with a bit of legal knowledge together with the development team and, and you know, the, the researchers who want to test some new technology, that's then they have in the beginning a chance to make sure that you're kind of aligning everything from start or at least that you can find the right tracks along the way. When you're in this very explorative mode that you are in, in in AI Sweden where you do these workshops and hackathons and you try to introduce this new way of working with data and thinking about data you as an as a an ex lawyer working with this how do you introduce the topics of law and then that's so connected to ethics that it feels like it's almost at this point at least where we don't have that consensus around or the actual loss being solidified. It's more about ethics, maybe even. How, how do you introduce that to companies that previously maybe were very focused on the tech and the the output? I mean, it's just a team that I've been working in. It's, it's a good example of it because, I mean, we have, of course, some of the very, very knowledgeable AI and development experts in our team on the technology side from like the, the data science perspective. And also from like infrastructure perspective, so they heavily on the tech side of things. And then we have me and my colleague Josephine, and then we also had Erika, another one who who also has kind of legal background. So first of all, that we have this thinking in the team has been helping us to also approach questions and also the mindset from partners. And we try to, you know, 
talk about it as it's something possible. Like basically the sooner you bring in the lawyer, the better. Because if you bring it to the lawyer at the last point in time, you know, just before you want to release something, that's that's a shitty time to bring it into lawyer because then it's going to be a no for sure. <laughs> lawyers are, most lawyers are not very risk-taking. Uh, so we we try to encourage them to, to basically do that. As I said, you know, to, to try to have that mixed team from the beginning. When we set up a new project, we introduce at least these legal questions early on. And then they don't have to pick them up maybe at, at once, but at least we want to make them aware of that. This is something that you might have to think about in the future. And we can point towards some uh, partners who have the expertise, or we can let them know this is out there already. And maybe you want to deep dive and find uh, new knowledge, uh, even things that we don't have already uh, or connections. But uh, so we try to, we basically just try to, to lift it as a topic and then we help them in the way we can. For example, by suggesting to use a different data set that we call maybe a proxy data set. Hmm. Test with this type of data set first and then figure out, you know, which, which data set. Make sure that you have all your kind of legal stuff done with the data set that you want to use eventually. And then you can kind of improve your technology development in the meantime while you're fixing the, the basically legal admin stuff. And then you can kind of move forward like that. But I, I don't, people are not really reacting in a bad way, I would say, when you bring up mm -hmm. the legal questions. And to the topic of, you know, today with AI being really, again, kind of revolutionary to how people are working, I think I haven't heard before so many people talking about the legal aspects of AI since ChatGPT came out. I mean, even the most, you know, refined researchers that are heavily on the tech side are also talking about these questions, how to regulate. And and it's, it's we just have to find a way to make it work. And I don't have the answer to how, but I definitely think it's something that we need to do. And I'm really, really curious about seeing, you know, what's what's coming in the near future and, and how... EU with the AI Act, for example, how that's going to set some standards, hopefully. And sure, not everybody's going to be very happy about what's going to be coming out in a couple of years because it's going to be difficult to work with it. But at least we have something to relate to. Hmm. Now it's kind of open and it creates uncertainties. What's AI Sweden's vision for, or your project's vision for how that participatory almost sounds egalitarian in, in its structure, a data economy. How, how could it look? That's a very good question. I mean, it's, we're there for the partners. So in that sense, we need to also find what they are willing to do, what they want to do. And then through the years that I've been at AI Sweden, I've quite many times have heard that AI Sweden should be the perfect place to build, you know, a huge database for data sets. And be that one kind of holder of all this data that could be available for Sweden and for organizations in Sweden, even for Europe, perhaps. And I like that idea that there could be this place where you can find all the data, but it's super difficult, uh, especially from some of the point of views that we've talked about. How do you just make sure that people want to donate enough data to make sure to build this huge data database? Also. What data is really interesting. I mean, it's actually, you realize, because quite a few 
have approached us with with different type of data that they you know think is is valuable but when you talk to a few other partners they can see no use of that type of data because i think again standardization of data is one super important topic that sounds really really boring but it's also very very important how do you create a standard for data? Because basically every organization that creates its own data set also creates it in its own way, which means that to any other organization or person, it wouldn't make any sense at all just to basically look at it. So if you could early on make sure that you create your data set in a way that it is possible to share it, that it makes sense to others, then that would be just a good start. And David, you've also worked with some workshops for for companies to understand how they can you know just start working with their own data i mean that could be difficult enough because the data doesn't make sense to different departments in the same organization so finding ways to create a good standard for it and then also how do you make it visible data catalogs etc you can see some different examples of that but you also want these kind of triggering let's say, events or happenings around the data, like in Hackathon, for example, to also boost usage of it. Because if it's just a huge catalog, I mean, it would make sense to some people, but I don't think it would get the use that it that you want from, such a, from making such an investment that you'd need to make sure that the data is available. You also really have to make sure that it's, it's possible to use, that it's possible to find the data and also kind of trigger innovation from it, trigger these kind of collaborative events where different partners can come together and and do something new from the data, find a new purpose for it, for example. So those are just some thoughts about how to share the data and what, what could be a vision. In the short time perspective, we have said that the data factory, for example, in AI Sweden might not be this place where this huge database is happening and mainly because the resources at the time wouldn't allow it but there could definitely be our organization or some other organization let's say for example rise or so that could start the embryo of building such a database and i know there are different initiatives in europe looking at similar things maybe for a specific topic like healthcare databases or automotive databases etc so that's definitely work that is happening, uh, but that's something that could be in the vision. And also, to be honest, uh, we had an idea about that we would have quite a bit more data sets available at this point where we are right now. But it is it has been a little bit difficult to to have the data sets come in because it requires quite a bit of work and investment to share a data set. Hmm. Yeah. So is it purely an incentives problem from that perspective or is it incentives and resources and you know investments it's it's actually quite a bit on on the kind of the economic side to make it worthwhile and and see the value in the end of the road and i think we need a few more of these good examples where you can kind of see the results from these companies that already went through the process i think if they can also learn from we said if you if you create your data set early on with the mindset of being able to share it that would already save some both money and time in the end but it's also difficult to say how do you create that data set in a way when you don't really know what it's going to be used for and by whom 
So there's a lot of question marks to help people that want to donate data actually be able to do it or at least license their data set. Is the way we work with the with the different type of technologies, like how can you use a technology to help them? And then this federated learning is the best example that I can mention at the time, but where we, together with a few partners, really built a whole lab with infrastructure needed to test this new type of technology to make sure that you then don't share the data, you share the model. And so if we can find different ways of using the technology to kind of get to where we want to be, that that's one way of making sure that this data could be used in the way we want it to be used. And I'm sure there are different, you know, there are different other technologies than those that we have at the, at the AI Sweden. But I think also, and especially with the federated learning, there's, there are different types of federated learning as well that you can use. So, so that's at least, you know, one way of making sure that we can use each other's knowledge and, and kind of expand on it. And we, that just to give a few examples. So, so we've looked at it, how it could be used for automotive industry, how it could be used for this bird life, how we could use it for healthcare, and also how it could be used in space, and for example, in satellites. And there it would also not only solve the problem of maybe carrying private data, but also where you have a bandwidth problem. Mm. So you want to decrease the amount of data that you have to to share or, or at least, you know, work with. So instead of uh, transferring all the data down to earth, you would instead share just the learnings from that data and bring that back, that down to earth from these satellites. So technology in itself can really open up some gates for sharing and learning from each other. You have been listening to Designing the Robot Revolution with me, Jacob Magnol. And me, David Griffith-Jones. Thank you very much for coming on, Eba. Talk to you again. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Designing the Robot Revolution. When we called EBA, we had a fabulous introductory chat about startups and working in Silicon Valley. And we thought that this might be interesting for you. So we've added this little extra part of this episode where EBA talks about her time in Silicon Valley and what she's done previously. And I hope you're going to enjoy that. And I hope to hear from you soon. Have a great day. My name is Ebba Josefsson Lindqvist, originally from Gothenburg, Sweden. I am an ex-lawyer. I did kind of a classic road for lawyers. I did some court practice. I worked for law firms. I did a trip to California, or actually a quite long visit. It was one and a half years as a trainee at the law firm over there. And that's where I met tech, a concept that I hadn't really heard before, but I kind of ended up in almost in the middle of Silicon Valley, where I at least spend a lot of time there and in San Francisco, which was super interesting for me. So that kind of changed my mindset. So went from classic lawyer to really being bit by the tech bug. And since then, I've tried to kind of transfer career-wise, at least, into more of a tech focus and eventually made the leap to go to a legal tech startup I was there for quite a short period, but it was a very interesting one. And after that, I went to AI Sweden. And I've been there for a little bit more than three years now. 
And I work with something called the data factory. I work still with legal questions, kind of the intersection between tech and law. So that's me kind of on a professional level. And then from that tech bug bite, I also got really interested in just like kind of hanging around in the ecosystem of entrepreneurs and startups. So I'm part of an organization called Silicon Vikings. That's more of my kind of voluntary work that I do. So do a few fun events through that organization, meet quite a bit of entrepreneurs, some of them in AI, and try to kind of support in the ecosystem of startups as much as I can, both here in the Nordics, new Nordics, as we call it, and also in Silicon Valley and with that connection. Looking back, Ebba, you said when you were in California, you got bitten by the tech bug. What, what was it that got your attention? You know, it was really, it was just everywhere. I mean, I was there for a law firm, so I thought it was going to be more of a classic, you know, we were working with incorporations of uh, basically Scandinavian companies who wanted to move into the U.S. market. So part of my job was also to find new clients and go to networking events. And basically all the events that I went to down in San Francisco and Silicon Valley were, of course, tech focused. It was Nordic companies that were coming over. It was startups that were from Silicon Valley or from the area and from all over the world. So it was just all around and it was so interesting. And what really was the kind of the bite was that all these entrepreneurs are so energetic. They're really, you know, living for what they're doing, their idea, whatever they want to accomplish with their company. Uh, so I sometimes see myself as a hang around around these people kind of living off the fumes of these entrepreneurs and Maybe one day I'll be an entrepreneur. I don't know if it's going to happen, but so far I'm just kind of hanging around and, and trying to help them and support as much as I can. What do you see as the difference? What is it about Silicon Valley that makes it such a special place? Yeah, this is really a cliche because so many people say it because I've also talked to a lot of people from there and what's special with Silicon Valley, but they all say it's a mindset. And I think that's part, that's also true. Of course, it's really something in the air. But I would also say it's really about the connections, the type of networking that they do over there. And they teach you, even if you're from California or from the U.S., or if you're coming into this area that you use the paid forward culture, you really network in a very efficient way. You learn quickly who to talk to, how to talk to people how you can help people get forward, find new contacts, uh, how to help people, and also how to get help. And eventually, of course, everybody's going to expect you to do the same for them. That's part of the culture in that area. And I think we're getting really much better at it over here in the Nordics as well. I think we're picking up on some of the good stuff and merging it to the culture that we have over here. Hmm. Jacob, you, you spent some time in Silicon Valley as well, didn't you? What's your take on that? I worked more in the tech giant part of Silicon Valley. And I think there are aspects of the culture that are the same. It's very energetic and it's very much that energy of doing things and getting things done and making sure that we're working towards something that is transformative. But for me, what really strikes me is if I were to start an entrepreneurial enterprise or a, a project, I would definitely choose to do that in Sweden, though because of the safety nets. And it's it's so much easier to fail here than it is in California, I think. I mean, granted, I'm from Sweden, so it's, many things are solved. But I think that's, for me, 
one of the big things with moving back to Sweden is if I want to do something like that, something ambitious, I'd much rather do it in the safety of the Scandinavian welfare system. Can I ask you, Jacob, then? Because to me, I thought about that a lot because it seems like we're a bit afraid over here to actually fail. I mean, sometimes the safety net seems to like actually, at least in the mind, hinder people from, you know, throwing themselves out there. Whereas in the US, you have nothing to lose because you, I mean, you'd lose everything or you win everything. So it seemed to me like some people there were braver because here you do have the safety net. If you have a good job, you have everything really sorted out. And then it's actually kind of scary to take that big leap. And I think that's true. I also think that the fraction of people that actually do stuff like that in the US are a certain type of American or wherever they're from, but they become some form of of special type of American. And I think they're also many times either extremely driven almost to the mania part of the spectrum or very fortunate to be privileged enough to do it is my analysis of that. I'm like, I'm, I'm a pretty comfortable guy. So I don't know that I'll, I'll actually find myself in an entrepreneurial situation. Probably not because I'm, I'm like j- me just saying that. So I think almost disqualifies me and, and I'm, I'm pretty fine with that. I think that's, that's okay. But I think we can learn from the Silicon Valley mindset there to actually try things and also to try things outside of work. Like, Maybe not committing 100% the first couple of days in a project like that. But you are not wrong. Definitely not. I can definitely see that difference in just doing it attitude, which, yeah. And Abby, you said you've you've kept this connection with Silicon Valley. You're part of Silicon Vikings. What's that? I mean, Silicon Vikings is a networking organization, a non-profit. It's based out of Silicon Valley, headquartered over there. It's been around for about 20 years and was created by a few Swedes who at the time wanted to make sure or network with other Swedes in the area. And since then, it's, it grew to uh, covering all the, of the different Nordic countries, including the Baltics as well as, of course, the increase in Silicon Valley. So I think we're about 45,000 plus network at the time. And uh, we're basically doing a different type of networking events, such as pitching competitions, panel discussions. So we're doing a bit of podcasting, hackathons, etc. But everything that we can think is interesting for people to network and connect with each other. With the focus of tech, entrepreneurship, innovation, and then, of course, with the focus of bridging between Silicon Valley and the new Nordics. I'm the director of Nordic Nodes, which really doesn't mean more than I like to put a lot of this kind of voluntary work in and trying to connect the different. First of all, the nodes over here in the Nordics and making sure that we can do some fun events kind of cross-border from this area at Silicon Valley. And now with all these streaming opportunities that we have, it's actually quite a lot easier to do the cross-border events. But we also try to do a lot of in-person events which of course during the pandemic was a bit difficult, but now we're kind of picking up speed again and trying to find fun and interesting stuff. We recently did an event on AI and foundation models and chat GPT. And we were also talking about the infrastructure, the need of these models, and when it comes to privacy and the regulation part of these models. So basically picking up what's boiling, what's hot and create an event around it. I'm curious 
from your perspective, there are so many initiatives around this, and it, it it strikes me to be just an extreme amount of ideas around new products. And and can you see how has that affected the quality of startups? I mean, I was mentioning that we do a startup competition, for example, and we run that. We've run it under a different name the first couple of years, and now we're running it under our own brand, New Nordics Pitch Competition, if I may advertise. But so this is the second year we're running it, and we've just had two of our finals in in Iceland and the Baltics. And I mean, we do see more AI startups apply. I'm very curious to see what it's going to be like for the rest of the finals that we run in, in Denmark, Finland, Norway, and Sweden. I think we will see a lot more AI startups, but I could also say rather from a AI Sweden perspective, where I have my daily job, that we definitely see a lot of AI startups. There's always quite a few that you know say that they are AI startups, and then there's also the ones that are actually doing the AI. And and we are doing at AI Sweden together with Ignite Sweden a startup mapping. Uh, if anybody's interested, where you can basically see all the startups that have gone through the screening of this mapping to find out. And I think maybe it's even 500 right now. I'm, I'm not sure about the last number, but, and they're doing that mapping basically for, for all of Europe, taking a few countries at a time. But yes, you definitely intend to see a lot more AI startups. The quality, I don't, I don't dare to talk too much about the quality. We can definitely see that there's some really, really high quality startups. Mm. And those are the ones that, for example, have passed the screening. Right. And I think some of them would maybe qualify as not very high quality AI startups when they're maybe using AI as a tool, but not necessarily actually creating the AI themselves, for example. Mm. So let me rephrase then, because I, I, it's kind of a mean question. I mean, recognize that but how when you when you interact with these startups can you see any trends in what they need help with in terms of understanding how to do ai better for their customers like what are the challenges that you see trending within these companies i mean i'm sure there are different trends but looking with my background of course i would lift the regulation and the legal side of the AI, that's where I feel more comfortable to talk. I mean, there's definitely different type of other things that I think some startups would need to improve on. But I think most of them are very, you know, they're really good with their own technology. And so it might be customer success or maybe also how to collaborate with larger corporations, which is sometimes a very difficult thing for many startups, not only AI startups. And it's not only on the startup side, of course, it's also quite difficult to collaborate with a company that has been around for over 100 years and has its set structures, etc. But the regulatory side of these matters, that's where I've been focusing Mm -hmm. at AI Sweden. Is there anything else that you want to bring up on the podcast? Now, we actually didn't touch much on the deep tech development in the New Nordics. Mm -hmm. The New Nordics podcast. Yeah, so basically about the the tech here, Mm -hmm. what we see. We touched a little bit on it. And so we're kind of looking into that, what's what's boiling in the New Nordics on the tech side. And then we like bridge to Silicon Valley every now and then or or always have that kind of in the background. Mm. But focus is over here and what's what's boiling. What have some of the episodes been so far? One was with Estonia's former president, 
Mm-hmm. And from her perspective, why Estonia has been so successful with unicorns and, and tech overall, especially on kind of the public side. And then we had uh, two entrepreneurs who were in the space area and just their their adventurous life story on how they become uh, entrepreneurs in, in space. And uh, now we have two episodes on, on deep tech one that was released already uh, from Binova's perspective, and then we will have one on from the investor side, deep tech investors. What does it mean, deep tech? I mean, it's really heavy research tech, not the uh, just uh, apps, uh, e- easier software, so right. to speak, but quite research intensive tech mm. that takes a long time to, to develop. And AI is one of these fields really good because like all all the exposure feels like it's on the the other end of that spectrum mm. with start startups yeah. implementing yep. sometimes not even anything on top of right gpt and then that deep tech perspective is cool i've yeah. just found your we're going to link to like, is there anything else you want to? You you have a lot going on. Do you want to give a shout out to anything that you're I doing? I mean, yeah. I mean, if you do any show notes, of course, AI Sweden, Silicon Vikings website would be great if you want to link to the oh, New Nordics course. podcast. But I think that would be 